0: Today's episode of Beyond the Mask is presented by the insurance specialists at Bright Think Wealth Strategies. Find the disability insurance coverage that fits you best right now. Email Robert Smith at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. The show is also made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. Get a free consultation today to be guided through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Just visit crnafinancialplanning.com. And don't forget, listening to our podcast can earn you Class B credits. For more information on how you can submit them, check out the CE Credit tab on our website, beyondthemaskpodcast.com.
1: Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us for another episode of Beyond the Mask with Jeremy and Sass, Clinical Edition. I'm Sass Elisha.
2: And I'm Jeremy Heiner. So in these episodes, we are going to talk about clinical anesthesia topics, and we'll talk about the management of different cases, pharmacology sometimes, critical events, and we're going to do, we're, we're going to focus on the most up-to-date topics and do it in a power-packed, concise episode. Today, we got something special. We're going to talk about a crisis of malignant proportions. So, we... <laughs> <laughs>
1: How do you come up with these these titles? I don't know. We know your time is important, and we want to make sure that the time that you spend with us is valuable. So take some deep breaths and pre-oxygenate yourself, because it is go time. It's go time.
0: We know CRNAs are busy with limited time. That's why we want to bring you clinical updates and reviews that are pertinent to your anesthesia practice. This is Beyond the Mask with Jeremy and Sass, Clinical Edition. Together, Jeremy and Sass have a combined 40 years of teaching anesthesia students and CRNAs. They speak nationally and at state associations and also continue to practice anesthesia in the operating room. Jeremy and Sass author and edit several anesthesia textbooks, including Nurse Anesthesia, the core anesthesia textbook used in the CRNA profession.
2: So we, we spend so much time talking about MH as anesthesia providers. I, I learned it in school. You learned it in school. We teach it in school. Even though most of us will probably never see an episode of MH. And, and think about it. with, Just think about ACLS. Every two years, we review the information, we review all the drug doses, we take the class, and, and a week later, I'm thinking, oh, wait, what was that drug dose again? <laughs> so unless thing, we're doing things all the time, we're not going to remember. So checklists are good. The reason that we maybe forget some of this is simply because we don't rehearse it often enough. So let's do this review and hit the high points. And maybe you'll forget about it by next week, like me, but we do have checklists and those will be available soon. We'll, we'll put a link in the show notes to where you'll be able to get those. Okay, Sass, I know you teach this concept, this topic to the students. Can you give everyone kind of an overview of the pathophysiology of MH?
1: Yeah, sure. So MH is a hypermetabolic syndrome. So hypermetabolism f- from any cause increases the amount of ATP used. The amount of oxygen consumption is increased. The amount of CO2 is also increased. However, specifically with MH, the cause is sustained muscle contraction. So I always tell students, think about exercise, the most extreme exercise that you could possibly do. When you're exhausted and breathing fast and tachycardic from exercise, there's a point where everybody will stop and that hypermetabolic state from exercise will decrease. MH is a hypermetabolic state like exercise that you can't stop. And the muscle contraction is the overwhelming primary reason for this. If you remember in in the cell, we have the sarcoplastic reticulum, we have calcium that moves in and out of the sarcoplastic reticulum, when calcium moves out of the sarcoplasmic reticulum in great concentrations, it causes muscle contraction. The reason why MH occurs and our anesthetic drugs, and this is a theory, sensitize people with who are MH susceptible to developing an MH episode is based on a RYR1 or ryanidine receptor. When this stimulation occurs, massive amounts of calcium and skeletal muscle come out of the sarcoplasmic reticulum, do not go back in, cause muscle contraction all over the body to a great degree. That doesn't stop. And as a result, you deplete ATP stores. CO2 goes up. We're going to talk about signs in a little bit. Uh, people get hot, you know, you when you exercise, certainly with muscle contraction, you get hot. And the most important thing is it's identified rapidly and treated rapidly. Because if it's not, there's a significant amount of mortality that is, that is still associated with
2: MH. Perfect. Thanks so much for going over that pathophysiology. Now, identification of a patient who might be at risk for mh is probably pretty key. Uh, what are some ways that we can identify these these patients who may be at risk?
1: Yeah, so you know we do our pre-op evals all the time and one of the questions that we always ask is have you or any of your family members ever had problems with anesthesia? If the patient says yes, my granddad had trouble breathing after anesthesia, that could be 150 million different things. However, what what would happen if the patient said, yes, I had my father got really hot after anesthesia and they told him it was caused by the anesthesia. Well, MH is an inherited autosomal dominant disease. If children, parents, or siblings of a person who does have the genetic susceptibility for MH they are at 50% chance of inheriting that MH susceptibility. So therefore, we would want to know, and we could proceed with an anesthetic that isn't triggering to the potential for MH. There are also disease states that are more highly associated with MH, such as muscular dystrophy. Specifically about muscular dystrophy, we've learned... uh, way back in anesthesia school, and it's a typical board or test question about Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And what we learned is Duchenne muscular dystrophy, if someone has it, they are at increased risk for developing malignant hyperthermia. Actually, they're not. Duchenne muscular dystrophy is associated with something called anesthesia-induced rhabdo, or rhabdomyolysis. So we still cannot use inhalation agents with these patients. We cannot use succinylcholine, but the theory as to the mechanism of action with patients with Duchenne muscular dystrophy is not the same as malignant hyperthermia.
2: Wow. So that that's pretty interesting. I know that I learned the opposite in, in anesthesia school.
0: Have you thought about what would happen if you weren't able to work for two or three years? You know, on average, 25% of people will file a disability claim. And most of us aren't prepared for that loss of income. Every CRNA needs to protect their biggest asset, yourself, and your ability to earn with a disability insurance policy. We recommend contacting Robert Smith, a master disability insurance specialist with more than 30 years of experience and 1,800 CRNA clients, to find the coverage that fits you best. The best way to do that is to send him an email at rsmithjr@financialguide.com. at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com or call him at 504-394-6557. How do we test
2: for patients who might have or might be susceptible to malignant hyperthermia? Yeah,
1: so still a test question, board question, and practical information for clinical. The gold standard is still the halothene caffeine contracture test. Um, it's not done in very many labs in the United States, However, it is still thought to be the gold standard. And there is also genetic testing now, as they learn more about the human genome and start to continue to isolate the genes related to malignant hyperthermia. The genetic test isn't perfect yet. There are still false negatives that are associated with it. However, in the future, I think it's gonna be pretty accurate in terms of being able to determine
2: if someone is MH-susceptible. Great, great. So. I know that I, I personally have not had an MH case, but I have anesthesia colleagues who have. And the presentation, the signs and symptoms, they sometimes vary. They don't they don't always, it doesn't always show up the same way. What are some major signs and symptoms we should be looking for in a, in a potential malignant hyperthermia case?
1: Yeah. So as we always say, human physiology doesn't read the textbook, Right. So when we talk about signs, again, this is practical, but also important for boards. The earliest sign, think about strenuous exercise. Your heart rate is gonna jump immediately. So the earliest sign is tachycardia, but it is so nonspecific. There are a million things that can cause tachycardia. However, secondly, the most reliable sign is an increase in end-tidal CO2 or PaCO2 which goes right along with, with metabolism there, a hypermetabolic state. So those are the most two most common signs that are going to start to be elevated relatively quickly. There are others, as we've heard, masseter muscle spasm. It can certainly happen. The greater the degree, the greater the likelihood. However, people can have MH episodes and not have masseter muscle spasm at all myoglobinuria from muscle breakdown, certainly a fever, and lastly, muscle rigidity. The reason that MH is difficult to diagnose sometimes is because there's an enormous variability in terms of the presentation, like so many things in anesthesia and related to the human body. So it would be pretty easy to diagnose if the CO2 started climbing five millimeters of mercury every minute, and the temperature started to increase to one degree centigrade every five minutes. But many times that's not the case. So the onset and the severity of signs are, are, are highly variable. And most likely if someone's going to have MH and develop MH to our anesthetic agents, it's going to be intra-op or immediately post-op. But it can happen as long as 24 hours after an anesthetic. And then one last crazy thing, someone can have MH susceptibility, have a triggering anesthetic, and not develop MH. They can have one anesthetic, two anesthetics, and maybe on the third anesthetic, they develop MH. So again, uh, sometimes it may not be obvious as to what is going on.
2: Okay, so bottom line, we got to pay attention, always. And I I like that you're talking about how the presentation isn't always the same. So uh, just for example, I had one anesthesia colleague tell me in, in the case that they had that was eventually diagnosed as MH, the patient had tachycardia. And how many times are we in the OR where tachycardia occurs? And it could be for a variety of reasons. Now they were trying to treat it, it didn't resolve, and then some of the other signs and symptoms came, started coming along. The title started climbing and so on and so forth. And eventually they got to the diagnosis of MH. Another colleague, it was it was started with the end title, just kept going up and up. And no matter how much ventilation, how, how much they increased the respiratory rate, that end title just kept creeping up, and then the patient had a master muscle spasm, and that was really what what clued it in and, and and diagnosed that particular situation of MH. But what about other reasons? I mean, we talk about differential diagnosis. Um, what do you tell the students?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, front shelf and back shelf. So if someone becomes tachycardic and mildly hypercarbic, are you going to go, we're going to declare an MH emergency, pull <laughs> out the dantrolene? Of course you're not. So at the beginning of a case, maybe it's a laparoscopic case, the patient gets a little tachycardic and hypertensive. Nine, 999 times out of 1,000, what are you going to think? The patient's light. Yeah. You're going to deepen the anesthetic. Exactly. Okay, the CO2 is going up a little bit. That's from entrainment of CO2 into systemic circulation. What are you going to do? You're going to increase minute ventilation. However, when you do the things that are front shelf, and the picture continues to look abnormal. Like you said, the CO2 is going up. Okay, maybe the CO2 granules are exhausted. Maybe your FiCO2 is high. Well, maybe that's the cause. Mm -hmm. But when you've ruled out all of the possibilities of what it could be, and it continues to get worse and worse and worse, you have to now bring in those back shelf diagnoses to say, What is making my end tidal CO2 continue to increase? And can we now correlate that abnormal finding with something else like an increase in temperature, which again, as we know in the operating room, people lose heat. They don't necessarily gain heat quickly. So can we correlate it with another sign to suggest that it may be?
2: And that makes so much sense. So. Initially, in terms of differential diagnoses, we got to rule out the most common, the, the front shelf diagnoses. Once we've ruled those out, that's when we bring in the back shelf and think of these big ones like MH or MI or whatever it may be.
0: Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com.
2: Okay, so now we've talked about identification and we've talked about getting to a diagnosis of MH. Let's say we're in a case. We have a, a a pretty good idea that this is an MH episode. How do we manage it?
1: Yeah, so the first thing when you think it may be MH and you know many times it's not going to be absolutely you know this is MH, it could be other hypermetabolic states too such as an undiagnosed pheochromocytoma or thyroid storm and again, those are very back shelf diagnoses, but you're going to call or create what we call an MH emergency and that's going to be for the surgeons to stop Uh, That's going to be for anesthesia help. We have something in the United States called M-House, the Malignant Hyperthermia Association of the United States. You can also call an expert at any time, day or night, 365, and describe the case, what's going on to an expert, and they can help to guide you through an MH episode. Again, which is fantastic. Um, We have MH checklists, which we're going to be distributing so people don't forget steps because for goodness sakes, you're not going to remember all the steps because we never do this. Of course, you're going to be discontinuing your inhalation agents, going to 100% oxygen. We have charcoal filters that can be put on the inspiratory and expiratory limbs. Of course, there'll be trace anesthetic inhalation agents in the machine. The charcoal filters will immediately decrease that concentration. We're going to want to try to cool the patient, give them IV fluid. We're going to want to get labs, such as potassium is a big one, and then also look at their renal function because of the possibility of myoglobinuria. Coag panel, MH is an independent risk factor for developing DIC, and also looking at an ABG.
2: So Sass, you had mentioned active cooling. What are some specific techniques that we can do to cool a patient really quickly?
1: Yeah. So just uncovering the patient, you know, the OR is a really cool place. In addition, if you look in most MH carts, they're going to have coal packs there. So putting coal packs on the patient, using uh, cooled or chilled saline is also a possibility. And then The books and literature says you can also put an NG tube down and put ice uh, saline into their stomach. Again, seems kind of invasive, but you know, it's something you can do. Now to continue on with treatment, people can develop hyperkalemia from all the muscle breakdown. And we know that insulin, D50, and also calcium chloride can can help to treat the hyperkalemia calcium chloride specifically so someone doesn't develop VTAC and VFib. Now, all the things that I've talked about are on checklists. That would be something that someone on M-House would tell you. Everything we've talked about so far is palliative. We're treating the signs, but we are not treating the disease state and reversing
2: it. There is a secret ingredient What is what is that
1: there is and everybody knows it the antidote to make this situation stop is dantrolene the mortality rate uh, dantrolene came out I believe it was the late 70s. And just so you know, I wasn't providing anesthesia at that time. However, (laughs) the mortality rate before dantrolene was developed was created was about 80%, which is horrifying. However, these days with dantrolene, better treatment, M-House, the mortality rate from MH is about 5%.
2: Okay, so now we got to know, how does dantrolene work?
1: Yeah, so you know the pathological process, we've talked about that, that our inhalation anesthetics and also succinylcholine sensitized the ryanidine receptor, the ryr one receptor on the sarcoplasmic reticulum releasing a lot of calcium. Dantrolene is very lipid soluble. It goes into those muscle cells and it desensitizes that ryanidine receptor, allowing calcium to go back into the sarcoplasmic reticulum and therefore decreasing muscle contraction, which is the root cause of all of our problems related to MH. People ask, well, why can't I just give a neuromuscular blocker you can't because a neuromuscular blocker simply works on the outside of the muscle cell, on receptors outside, and does nothing to the sarcoplasmic reticulum and the sensitization. People also ask, well, can I give a channel blocker, or calcium channel blocker? And actually, calcium channel blockers, you know, if the, if the problem is calcium, let's give a calcium channel blocker. Again, calcium channel blockers will work on receptors on the outside of the cell not within the cell and calcium channel blockers are actually contraindicated in this hypermetabolic state the last thing you want to do is depress the heart if you do people can you know develop a shock state from myocardial depression so calcium channel blockers are a they won't help the disease state and B, they may make the situation significantly worse.
3: Hey, Sharon, we've got some exciting news to share with people today, don't we? Yes, we do. And why don't you let the cat out of the bag, Jeremy? <laughs> wow, I don't usually put cats in bags. Is that kind of a deep-seated <laughs> thing with you or what? You know? uh, well, you know, some of our listeners know we've been doing live podcasts around the country at different state association meetings a and a events and so forth and may 4th through the 7th we're actually going to be at the pennsylvania state meeting sharon you've been there a lot and spoken a lot there um at the hotel hershey Um, yes yeah and i've never been to the hotel hershey oh my gosh you are in for a treat when you check in they ask you milk or dark because you get chocolate when you check in it's it's really cool so listeners if you want to go to a great meeting pennsylvania puts on a great meeting we'll be doing the live podcast taping there and they're going to be having a party there too and guess who the dj is uh let me think does his last name end with pierce yes it does uh, DJ so pierce come join us <laughs> Can't leave the house without him anymore. You know. That's right. So, join us in in Pennsylvania at the Hotel Hershey, May fourth through the seventh, and come to a great meeting.
2: All right. Now, SASS. How about the dosing for dantrolene?
1: Yeah. So the initial dose for dantrolene for everybody is two point five milligrams per kilogram. Now, people always ask, well, should I dose this on actual body weight, lean body weight? You know, uh, what should I dose this on? You know, especially when, you know, we have so many patients who are overweight and obese. Um, I actually sent an email to M House because I really wanted to know if there were actually people there. Um, And they actually responded. And what they responded was, Dantrolene should be dosed on their actual body weight, even if they are obese and the reason is the last thing you want to do with dantrolene is underdose it as compared to giving them the 2.5 per kilo dose and if it's actually a little bit larger it still works in to the total dose of anywhere from 10 milligrams per kilogram Some sources say up to 30 milligrams per kilogram. Dantrolene works really quickly. It's supposed to start working within six minutes. The half-life of dantrolene is hours, somewhere around six hours. And we have a newer preparation. It's not new anymore. So the old dantrolene or ravenoto preparation, each vial came as 20 milligrams. Well, if you're talking 2.5 milligrams per kilogram for a 70 kilogram guy you're talking about 175, 180 milligrams that's nine vials as compared to Rayanodex in each vial it has 250 milligrams put five cc's in and what you have is each cc is 50 milligrams you can give them their loading dose almost instantly And have extra to go. So Rhyanodex and the big, big advantage of it is that you can give it really, really rapidly. M House says each 10-minute delay in the administration of dantrolene increases the potential for severe complications by 20%. So the most important thing is getting it in there.
2: And getting it in there early. Absolutely right. All right. Now... We've treated, we've managed this uh, this episode of MH in the OR, and it's obvious that this patient is going to be going to the ICU. They're not, they're not going to pack you. They're not going home. They're staying in the hospital. What kind of uh, instruction or how would the ICU manage this patient now? Now that they've had this episode? Yeah.
1: Well, you know, 25% of people that have an episode of MH and that it's treated in the operating room with dantrolene will have a relapse within 24 hours. So certainly you can't be discharging these patients. They're going to stay in the ICU. And what is recommended, because that number is pretty high, 25%, is that the patient continues to get dantrolene one milligram per kilogram every four to six hours up to 24 hours, or as a continuous infusion of 0.25 milligrams per kilogram per hour for 24 hours. And then, of course, all of the ICU monitoring to make sure, and, and the blood work, to make sure that our signs and symptoms are decreasing.
2: Now, finally, let's finish this discussion of MH up with the potential complications that could occur.
1: Yeah. So we've already talked about uh, renal failure and acute kidney injury. Um, that's not only possibly from the breakdown of muscle, but also dantrolene is hard on the liver. So if you were to give a large dose of dantrolene in order to, you know, treat the MH episode, um, there's the possibility that you know your liver enzymes may be raised. It would probably not cause hepatic failure. But it could, you know, you could see that in terms of liver enzymes. We've already talked about DIC, and that's a possibility. Cardiac dysrhythmias with a hypermetabolic state. You take a healthy 20-year-old that gets MH, and their heart can take it all day. But, you know, you get an older, sicker person with a compromised, you know, cardiovascular system, and they could certainly have an MI. They could certainly have a CVA. Um, And then also compartment syndrome and you think why in the world compartment syndrome so compartment syndrome can occur because of rhabdo because of the breakdown of muscle that occurs um, if mh is not treated effectively and rapidly
2: all right perfect sas thank you so much for this review to all of our listeners out there thank you for hanging out with us uh, for this episode And you know, word of mouth is the primary way that this podcast grows. So if you like what you're hearing, please consider leaving a positive review and sharing it with your anesthesia friends.
1: Okay, CRNA Nation, that's it for this episode. Keep ventilating and we'll catch you on the next one.
0: As a CRNA, you spend years preparing yourself for this career, so we don't want to see you lose out on any of the income you've worked so hard to earn. The best way to protect yourself and give you the confidence that a major life event won't disrupt your financial future is through disability insurance. We've known disability income specialist Robert Smith for many years and have seen the work he's done with nearly 2,000 CRNAs over multiple decades. He can help identify any gaps in your existing coverage and fill those gaps by finding the best value on a policy. Contact Robert and let him know you heard about him on our podcast. Send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com. Or call him at 504-394-6557. Protect your greatest asset as a CRNA, yourself and your ability to earn a living, by adding disability insurance to your financial plan. Today's show is brought to you by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group. Jeremy and Sass expressly disclaim any liability in connection with the use of this presentation or its contents by any third party.